As many of you know, um, my grandmother has been in and out of the hospital. It, it may very well be after her uh, long battle with uh, stage four cancer, it may be approaching the, uh, the time of her departure, to use language that, that Paul uses. And in light of that prospect, especially in light of um, some of the um, blood work results this week and some of what was going on, I tried to um, not only spend time with her, but comfort her with the scriptures. As is sometimes the case, you'll find that you'll often go to scriptures that God has used to comfort you, and you'll use those scriptures to comfort others. Now, there are different scriptures that I referenced to her during our time together. Of course, honing in on the gospel and the reality of Christ being the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through Him. Romans 5.1, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Walking through Romans 5, even beyond that, and we shall be saved from wrath through Him, and so on. But then there are promises in light of a person's profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are times when you just want to affirm them of the assurance that they could have in Jesus' nearness and presence. There are passages like Romans 8, Verses 38 and 39, where we're assured that nothing, and Paul gives a whole list, right? Uh, No created thing, height nor depth, angels nor principalities, and so on. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. One scripture that's been particularly um, helpful to me in my walk with Christ has been Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. And I shared this text with Grandma as well. It reads like this, Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock... In his arm he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. The language there is noticeably sweet. It's noticeably tender. It reveals Yahweh's graciousness, his condescension, his compassion. As though to say those feeble ones, those weak ones, are taken up in his arms. It's as, they, it's, it's, it's as though they're carried close to his heart, in his bosom. He takes them right to himself. I think there's great comfort to be found in the affection that God has for his own. But along the lines of what we're going to see today in the book of the prophet Haggai, if we went one verse back of that very popular verse that I just read to you from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. If we went one verse back, I think there's also comfort we could find there. Don't forget what Isaiah 40 is, by the way. It's the chapter of Isaiah that begins with comfort. Comfort ye my people. And that comfort doesn't only go through verse 1 and 2. There's comfort to be found in the entirety of that chapter. Well, if you went right to the verse that's before Isaiah 40, verse 11, you would see this. Behold, the Lord God will come with might. With his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense is before him. So in verse 11, you have that arm of the Lord that takes up his lambs and holds them close to his chest, close to his heart, in his bosom. But then in verse 10, right before that, you are told that this arm is a mighty arm. Behold, the Lord God will come with might. It's a ruling arm. You go on a little bit later in Isaiah 40, you see it's an unstoppably sovereign arm. No one can stop him. He cannot be thwarted. He is unstoppable. And I'm saying that to say we should take great comfort in God's compassion, his graciousness, and his condescension towards us. And at the same time, we should take great comfort in his unstoppable, unthwartable might and sovereignty. I think you see a little bit of both in Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, with an emphasis, I think, on the former. 
We'll see that as we get into this last passage of the book of the prophet Haggai. Noticeably, you'll see that this is the second message that Haggai gave to the people on that day. He had a message earlier in the day or sometime before this message. We don't know the division of time, but this is the last message in this book. But the other one that he had given to them most recently came earlier in the day. We saw that in Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. And then comes this message, this final message. We'll jump right into it and we'll make our way through it. We begin in Haggai chapter 2, verse 20, where we read, Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai. On the 24th day of the month, saying, so just creating a little bit of context, this is, as some note to be, December 18th, 520 BC. It's the second message that he's giving that day. The earlier message you can see in verses 10 through 19. Now, throughout his ministry during this time, you can go back to Haggai chapter 1, verse 1, he's exhorted the people to rebuild the temple. The people listened, they got materials, they began to rebuild. Then, as they were rebuilding, they became weary. They became discouraged. And God gave them great encouragement. And then he gave them a kind of Q&A session via the priests to remind them that they are to be a holy people and that you don't get holy just by contact with holy things. But they are to be a holy people. They are to carry themselves as holy, learning from their past, applying such truth in the present. And now he's got one more message for them through the prophet Haggai, at least as recorded in this book. And we're going to get to that in a moment. Verse 21 begins that message. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. Now this is unlike previous messages that Haggai has given, because this one's only directed to Zerubbabel, who is the governor. Earlier on, we see there was a message directed to Zerubbabel and Joshua. We see messages directed to them and to the remnant of the people. We see a Q&A with the priest, but obviously that was for the people as well. Here is a message specifically given to Zerubbabel. But we do know, even though he's the initial recipient of it, he wasn't to be the only recipient of it. He was to be the initial recipient, but others were to be encouraged by it. In his day, in our day, and in between. Now first, before we get to that message, I do want to give you a bit more of biography about Zerubbabel. Gave you some in the opening message of our study. I'll give you a little bit more now. Zerubbabel, whose name means seed of Babylon or offspring of Babylon, which probably suggests that he was born in captivity, born during the Babylonian captivity. So he was born in Babylon. He was, as we've come to find in our study, he was the God-appointed leader of the people of Judah as they were undertaking the rebuilding of the temple. Interestingly, we see his name appear in both genealogies of Jesus recorded in Matthew's gospel as well as Luke's gospel. Now, he did not serve as a king. He was serving as a governor. He had a position of leadership among the people, a position of civic leadership Which is why some suggest this message is directed towards him, because as we're going to see, it concerns the nations and what God was going to do amidst the nations. So that's possibly a reason why he's particularly directed, uh, the message is particularly directed to him. He had a charge to be the kind of overseer of the rebuilding of the temple, but he wasn't going to do this in his own might or his own strength or by conventional means. He's the one of whom God said it was not going to be by might nor by power, but by the Lord's spirit. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. So here he is with this charge to rebuild the temple, to oversee that. He's a representative of the Davidic line. 
Um, this is of important significance. The Davidic line almost looked, it looked as though from an outward appearance, as though it had been essentially thrown away, stopped. You might remember the uh, grandfather of Zerubbabel, sometimes referred to as Coniah, often referred to as Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin. He was the one to whom God spoke in Jeremiah 22, and he told that king that if he were a signet ring, God would take him off and cast him away. He was a wicked king. And interestingly, God had even said that his descendants, none of his descendants would sit on the throne. That was Jehoiachin. And it looked as though, and then you got Zedekiah, who's kind of like a, a quasi-leader who's put in place, kind of a, a, a puppet of Babylon and so on, and, and, and he's put in position of power. And all of a sudden, the people go into captivity, and it's like, what happened to the Davidic line? God had promised that there would be an offspring of David who was going to sit on the throne. It looks like it's over. It looks like it's over. And then all of a sudden, the people come back from Babylon, and you have this offspring of David who's going to end up in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, named Zerubbabel. And it's a reminder that although the promise of God looked like it was done, looked like it had been broken, there was an enduring truth that we were all to remember. God would guard the line of the Messiah, even as he guards his promises to make sure every one of his promises come to fulfillment. It may look like they're done, it may look like it's not going to come to be. I remember when I was younger, I used to watch, uh, I used to like watching wrestling. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to like watching that with my family. And there was a particular wrestler who was my favorite for a long time when I was younger. When he got hurt, I used to cry because I thought he really got hurt. And I was like, oh, no, I wrote him a letter one time uh, because he was in the hospital. And I was like, I showed him in the hospital. He's got to be in the hospital. And I care about him. I'm going to write him a letter. And so I, and so I did. And one of the things that this wrestler used to do is that he'd be in a match, and you kind of knew what was going to happen in most of the matches, especially the big ones when there were big events, right? It'd go back and forth, back and forth, and then there would be some point when somebody would put like a sleeper hold on him, right? And somebody would do that, and it looked like he was out for the count, right? And then the referee would come over, and the referee would lift his arm, and then he'd drop it. One, if it goes to three, it's over, right? And the referee would lift his arm again and drop it. Two, and the referee would lift his arm again, and then just before it went down too far, I'm not sure how far enough that you had to go, but before it went down too far, he would pick up his arm, and all of a sudden he would get pumped up, and then most often would win the match, it reminds me of what you sometimes see in the scriptures because it looks like from an outward circumstance that the promise isn't going to come to pass. It looks like Athaliah is going to wipe out the line and there isn't going to be anybody of the descendants of David to sit on the throne. It looks like the Babylonian captivity and the curse that came upon Coniah or Jehoiachin is going to be the end. It looks like Herod's going to wipe out the newborn Messiah who was born. It looks like that. It looks like the promise is going to come to an end and it's not going to happen. It even looks like that in Zechariah 14, right before the Messiah returns, it gets worse before it gets better, even in Jerusalem. But even though it looks worse before it's going to get better, it doesn't mean the promise isn't going to come to pass. God is faithful. Every one of his promises are going to happen and they cannot be stopped. And the reality of the Messiah's line is, I think, a witness to that. No matter how many bullets were fired at the Messiah's line in history, it couldn't be stopped. Just look at the, the, the lineage as you see it revealed in the New Testament. Just couldn't be stopped. It's going to march on. 
marches on, unstoppable. It reminded me, thinking about that, reminded me of a, a historical account that I had heard some years back regarding George Washington. And God's providence allowed George Washington to become the first president of the United States. During the French and Indian War, a um, British force that was joined with Washington and his troops under General Edward Braddock, um, they were thoroughly defeated by French and Indian soldiers. As Washington rehearsed this account in a letter, I believe to his brother, I'm not sure off the top of my head, but I think it was in a letter to his brother, he recalled how death was leveling his companions on every side of him. So people were dying left and right. It was, it was a rout. Washington survived, not because he was like out of harm's way and he was just like hiding in the corner. That's not the picture at all. As a matter of fact, he said in the letter, in the letter where he just said what I quoted, he also said this, I have been protected beyond all human probability or expectation, for I had four bullets through my coat and two horses shot under me, yet escaped unhurt. This reminds me of the unstoppable nature of God's sovereignty in preserving the line of Christ. If that could have been stopped, if that promise could have been stopped, we'd imagine that it would have. All the guns would have blazed at that target. Because if that target was hit, if God's promise could be made void, if God could be made to be a liar, oh, what that would do. But the plans of God were bulletproof. (laughs) They always are. Many shots were fired, but the messianic line continued on. Zerubbabel is a reminder of that. More about that in a moment and how that applies to us. But let's walk through the text a little bit more. Second half of verse 21 into verse 22. God says, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down. Everyone by the sword of another. All right, we do well to remember who's saying these words, right? Haggai was prophesying, but he was Yahweh's mouthpiece. Yahweh is speaking. God is omnipotent and God is sovereign. God can make good on every one of these promises. And it's not a heavy lift for him. One commentator used the example of an adult taking the snow globe of a child and kind of lifting it and shaking it. Just imagine the ease with which an adult can do that. Maybe you have, you know, had some of those ornaments or things like that in your house during Christmas time and you could just take up that thing and you could shake it with ease. It's not a heavy lift for God to do what he's saying here. I will shake the heavens and the earth. That's how strong he is. And the language is also strong. If you work through the text here, at the after verse 21, you get to verse 22, this language is strong. The word overthrow that's used when he says, I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. That kind of language is used with respect to Sodom and Gomorrah. We see it in Genesis 19. We see it used with respect to them in uh, Amos chapter 4, verse 11. The language of destroy is strong. It's the language that's used in Deuteronomy to speak of Israel destroying the Canaanite nations when God says he will destroy the power of the kingdoms of nations. Now, I would say when you look at this, although there may be some near fulfillments, so to speak, I think the language here points to the ultimate fulfillment. I think the scope is eschatological, meaning when we talk about eschatology, we're talking about last things. We're talking about end times. So I think the scope of this ultimately is eschatological concerning when Christ returns. 
I say that because of the language here. God said he would overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. Um, again, there may be near fulfillments, near, um, near fulfillments to some degree, but ultimately I think this is wide-ranging. It's not just the overthrow of a single throne that's predicted. It's the plural, the overthrow of thrones. God said he would destroy the power of the kingdoms of nations, and I think this is rem- reminiscent of what we see in Daniel chapter 2, of what the kingdom of the Messiah would do, of what the Messiah would do. Uh, In the book of the prophet Daniel, that stone that represented the Messiah and his kingdom will, quote, crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Daniel 2, verse 44. Going on a little bit in Daniel, in the day of Christ's return, Daniel 7, 27, the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole of heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. So those are some reasons why I think the language here is ultimately eschatological. It ties in with what we know will happen when Jesus returns. Third, when the Lord said through Haggai, I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down. The idea here appears to be that God is honing in on the, um, the weapons of warfare that were used by ancient armies. That God's basically saying, I'm going to overthrow these weapons of warfare. They're going to be put to rest. It's not going to matter. I'm just going to destroy them. Think of God's power. I mean, you look in the book of Revelation when the beast and his armies get ready to do battle with the returning Christ and his holy ones. They might as well just have Nerf guns. Right? It doesn't matter. You can have Nerf guns and toy tanks. No matter what you have, whether you have chariots or tanks or stealth bombers, it doesn't matter. It's easy for God to overthrow them in the blink of an eye. It's how easy it is. He's so strong, unstoppably strong. But then we even have this last phrase, which I think points eschatologically, again, to last things, to the return of Christ. I think because it says, and everyone by the sword of another, um, that corresponds with Zechariah 14. In Zechariah 14, when you see Christ return, you see him destroy his enemies in one way, as depicted in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 12. Um, Rather graphic depiction there that we went through not too long ago. While others will destroy one another. So it's as though there's chaos coming. Christ is returning, he's destroying his enemies, and then enemies turn on one another. Zechariah 14, verse 13 says, It will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them, And they will seize one another's hand, and the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another. That's something that we have historical precedent for. You go through the scriptures, you've seen this kind of thing before, right? When Gideon was used by God to overthrow the Midianites, what happened? The Midianites turned on one another. We see in 1 Samuel chapter 14 that there's an occasion there where the Philistines turn on one another. Remember when there was that multitude and Jehoshaphat prays because he looks to God. We're no match for this great multitude that's come against us. Neither do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. What happened? Who is that multitude? It was the people of Moab, the people of Ammon, and the people of Seir. Well, you'll notice as you go on in that story that as the people began to praise, what happens is that the enemies turned on one another. The people of Moab and Ammon turned on the inhabitants of Seir. They dealt with them, and then they dealt with one another. So there's historical precedent for this kind of thing happening, and it seems like it's going to happen at the end when Christ returns too. Not hard to imagine. Chaos ensuing, people not knowing what to do, wanting to take out angst and frustration on other people, even close to them, and that's what happens. So why am I saying all this? I'm referencing all these things because when we look at verses 21 and 22, second half of 21 and verse 22, 
even if there are measures of what we've often referred to as near fulfillment, I think it's ultimately eschatological. Even as we saw in Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, ultimate fulfillment has a kind of end times, day of the Lord feel to it. So that's why I'm referencing all that. Now we come to verse 23. Verse 23, the Lord says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So this is the climactic end of the book of the prophet Haggai. And it's a very specific message to Zerubbabel, but it would have great import and significance to the people, especially while they were doing their work. And then we'll see the application to us when we get there in a moment. But first, think of the significance of this for Zerubbabel. God was telling him on that day, what day? The day that he just depicted A day when he's shaking heaven and earth, the heavens and the earth. A day when he's overthrowing the kingdoms and destroying the powers of the kingdoms of the nations. When he will overthrow the chariots and their riders, the horses and their riders will go down. Everyone by the sword of one another. Now it sounds like mass judgment. God is bringing his just and sovereign and righteous judgment. And now he's comforting Zerubbabel. Saying, on that day, when these things happen, when this goes down, I will make you, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, and I will make you like a signet ring. Now, I don't think the application of the signet ring is limited to what I'm about to say to you. But I think for Zerubbabel, it has application to him personally, as though to say, a king who had a signet ring, more about that in a moment, It was important and dear to the king. You did not want to lose your signet ring. If you lost your signet ring, somebody could use it. Say you wrote said letter, and then they could use your signet ring, which would have some sort of way in which you could imprint some soft wax with your distinct seal, as though to say you're authenticating this document. It was essentially your stamp. It was essentially your signature. It would be something that would be very dear to a king. Now, depending on the way the signet ring was, it could be worn around the neck. We see that as it relates to Joseph. Or it could be worn around the finger. But nonetheless, it would be dear to the king. And I think part of what's happening here, it's not the totality, but I think part of what's happening here is that God's saying to Zerubbabel, in the midst of all of these things that are going to go down, I've got you. You'll be safe. You'll be in my hand. You'll be protected. You'll be dear to me and close to me. Yes, it's not the language of Isaiah 40, verse 11, right? I'm going to take you and I'm just going to hold you close to my chest like a little lamb. But it's connoting that kind of thing, I think, that you're going to be near and you're going to be dear to me. I'm going to take you like a signet ring. But I think there's more than that going on. I think it was a reminder as though Zerubbabel was God's signature, his stamp, as though to say you are going to be from this time, from the God making that statement and a reminder of it eschatologically, you are going to be a kind of stamp, a kind of signature that what I have said concerning the line of David and the dynasty of David will come to pass. It's as though you are my signature. I'm saying, look, the line of David isn't over. The Messiah is going to come. And now via Haggai's prophecy and ultimately even eschatologically, you are going to be a reminder of that. I'm not done with the messianic line. I'm going to keep my promise. And you, Zerubbabel, you are kind of my signature, a kind of guarantee 
from the moment he communicated that in history, that my promises will come to fulfillment. So that's what I think is going on there. When he says that you're going to be, I'm going to take you, you're going to be like my signet ring. Now note some of the language here. I just want to call your attention to this briefly. Notice how Zerubbabel is identified. He's identified as my servant. That's a big title in the scriptures. That's the kind of title that's used for Moses. That's the kind of title that's used for David. It's the kind of title that's used for the Messiah. More about that in a moment as well. He's also called here, essentially, God's chosen. For I have chosen you, the Lord says. That's who Zerubbabel was. And in that, I think Zerubbabel points to one greater than Zerubbabel. We're not explicitly told that Zerubbabel was a type of Christ. But I think given the language that's used to describe Zerubbabel, he appears to me to be a type of Christ in quite a few ways. First, let me call your attention to this. He's called, as I just referenced, my servant. And he's also essentially referred to as God's chosen one. That's how the Lord speaks of his Messiah in Isaiah 42, verse 1. He says, Behold my servant, speaking of Christ, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So Zerubbabel was God's servant, and he pointed to the ultimate servant that would come, Jesus Christ. Zerubbabel was chosen by God, even as the Messiah would be the elect one, that cornerstone, elect and precious. Zerubbabel was like a signet ring. Now again, the idea of a signet ring, think about it. You would use it if you're a king, put it in some soft wax. You make an imprint that represented you. Jesus, we're told in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The signet ring ultimately, you might say, points to the one who is the exact representation of the Father, Jesus Christ the Son. Zerubbabel was the governor of God's people as they were in, back in the land and in Jerusalem. Christ is the head of his body, the church. Zerubbabel led the people out of Babylonian captivity. Jesus leads all of his people out of the captivity to sin. So as you approach the climactic end, as God is telling Zerubbabel, all these things are going to happen, but you're going to be secure. You're like a signet ring in my possession, but you're also like my signature, guaranteeing that the Davidic line will continue, the Messiah will come, and my promises will come to pass. So you have that dynamic happening, but then you have in Zerubbabel a kind of type and a shadow of the one greater than Zerubbabel who would come, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you have the implications of this message for the people. And then we get to the application for us. Why would this encourage the people? Was this just solely encouragement for Zerubbabel? Or was God intending for this message to encourage the people beyond Zerubbabel? As one commentator had noted, uh, there isn't a call to action here, right? There's no call to action. It's just truth. There are things that God is going to do. You look at the language, right? Look at verses 21 through 23. And look at all of the first-person language that we see. I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, verse 21. Go to verse 22. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. Go to verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, 
I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. No to-dos for the people. They had been given to-dos. Now it's just about what God's going to do. So how would that encourage the people? They were to wait in hope. God wasn't idle. He's not idle now. He called his people then to be about the business of rebuilding the temple. You don't have to be overly concerned, people of Judah, with all that's going to happen geopolitically and all that's going to happen in the world. I've got that. I'm the one who's in control. I will shake. I will overthrow. I will take you. you I, will, I will take you and I'm going to do what I'm going to do with you. I have it all under control. You don't have to be overly concerned with the movements of geopolitical powers. You just be concerned with the fact that I'm in control and you be about the business I've called you to be about. I think that would be a big takeaway for the people. Again, no to-dos right there. They had their to-dos. You'd be about the business of rebuilding. And you wait and hope and you trust me that I'm in control. I have this whole thing under control. The nations are like a drop in the bucket. My plans are unthwartable. They'll rise and they'll fall according to my purposes. You, just be about my work. I think we have some application for us in light of that, right? We haven't been called to rebuild a physical temple, but we are called to take part in Christ's building of a spiritual temple. One stone upon another. When you sow seed of the gospel and when by the grace of God somebody comes to know Jesus Christ, it's as though another stone has been added to the temple that Christ is building. You're to be a part of that work. You're to be sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died for sinners and that he rose from the grave and that he's the only way. You have a part in the beautification of the temple. As you seek to edify one another, build up one another and so on, it's as though you're taking part in God's work of beautifying the temple. And in the days in which we live, there are many things going on geopolitically. I mean, there will be some people who would say, building the church? There's no time for building the church. We need to be building bunkers. That's what we need to be building. And what I would say is, look, whether you want to build bunkers, that's, you want to store food and things like that, I think there's wisdom and preparedness, right? Well, we see that even scripturally and so on, but not to the expense of being about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to have this comfort that comes from knowing that God is in control. And I know, I understand that there will be God, things that God will do and allow in the course of history that we'd say, you know what, if I was God, I wouldn't have done it that way. Right? I've made the joke to you many times that, you know, I, and I don't say this seriously, I said if, if I was running the universe, I would make it more like Paw Patrol. Like that's how, you know, because I, I just, everything seems happy. You know, the worst case scenario is you got Mayor Humdinger and you got to deal with him. And yes, he's prideful and you got these things, but I would make it more like that. And when I mention those things, even to the Lord, I say, Lord, I hate the fact that in my fallen frame, there's something appealing about that thought. Because at the end of the day, I bow the knee to your perfect wisdom and sovereignty. I know that that inclination is in and of itself sinful. It's as though to say, I would trust my governance of the universe more than I would trust yours. And I'm so thankful that you love me despite my fallen proclivities and inclinations like that. But God was essentially telling the people in more ways than one throughout this book, I'm in control. Take comfort in my sovereignty. So I end uh, our study with going through this amazing book of the prophet Haggai to remind you of what you've already been told numerous times through this book. Do not forget some of the main messages that we've looked at together. And I'm going to remind you as we get ready to close. God wanted his people 
to not be about the business of just building their own lives. He wanted them not to be indifferent to his priority, making their own priorities central. He wanted them to build their lives around God. Brothers and sisters, though we are leaving the book of the prophet Haggai, may that message stay resonating in your mind. May your life continue to be built around God. And whatever would keep you from doing that, I would encourage you to remove that or change things around so that that's not the case. Remember that God is the God who encourages his people. We saw at the end of chapter 1 the difference that the Spirit of God and the Word of God make. Make sure that you're in the Word of God, that you're under the preaching of the Word of God, trusting that the Spirit of God will take the Word of God and strengthen you and encourage you. And know that God is so gracious that even as you're in the midst of building as the people were in Haggai chapter 2, God will so often meet you with encouragement, even amidst your discouragement. I would tell you to be on the lookout for it, because it's what He does. He's the God of all comfort. He encourages his people. I would remind you, as I've told you before, not to be discouraged. If you look at what you're building right now and it looks meager and paltry, in light of the message from Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, remember, the fact of the matter is you're building more than you realize. Just like them. It looks like a meager temple. Yeah, just because you see it and it looks meager and paltry now doesn't mean that's what it's going to be. It's going to be even more glorious than Solomon's temple. You just be about the business that I've called you to and trust me. Then remember what we learned last week in Haggai chapter 2, that God wants a people to be mindful of how easily uncleanness can be transmitted, how mindful of how easily we could come into contact with things that are sinful and be, as it were, defiled by that. And to remember that contact with that which is holy, whether it's the preaching of God's word, being amongst the saints on a Lord's day and so on, does not make me holy. Ultimately, it's the work of Christ, and then practically, it's us walking in holiness. And then we come to today, and today is a reminder that we are to work faithfully, even as we work hopefully, with great hope. God is in control. He is sovereign. And all of his people, in a certain sense, will be like precious signet rings held so close to him, like sheep in his grasp, that nobody can separate from his hand. So you continue to work, and you wait for that day, and the assurance that it's coming is put to you in a fresh way via the signature that is Zerubbabel. (laughs) It's as though God put his stamp on history to say, look back and look forward and be assured that I will do what I've promised to do. Zerubbabel is my signature, if you will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the great promises and assurances that we have That while we seek to work by your grace faithfully, we can work with hope. And I thank you that that hope is rooted in the fact that you, the God of the universe, sent your eternally begotten son to die for sinners like us. So that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. Father, thank you for the one who is greater than Zerubbabel. Thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the one who is building his church and we're thankful that we could be the church of the living God because the son of God laid down his life for us, died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Thank you for he who is our ransom, he who bore the curse of the law so that we might be eternally blessed. Thank you for that one greater than Zerubbabel. And thank you for the reminder that Zerubbabel is that all of your promises 
will continue. And when it looks like they're not going to come to pass, it doesn't mean that they're not. You are unthwartable and unstoppable. Help us to work in faith with our eyes upon you, realizing that in the here and now, we build more than we realize. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.